Welcome listeners, this is Rusty Reno at First Things Magazine, and this is the next episode of the Editor's Desk. And I have with me today, JJ Kinchy, and to talk about a recent book about Meyer Kahane. And so welcome to the show. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I do remember him from my youth and I kind of came of age in the 1970s when perhaps he was at his zenith of, of fame and influence. And even though I lived in a thoroughly Gentile world, he, uh, he was just this, this radical figure. So tell us a little bit about who he was and what the trajectory of his career was. Sure. Um, so Mayor Kahana, he was, I think, best summed up as a radical political activist. Um, he grew up, uh, you know, in an Orthodox Jewish home and, and became an Orthodox Jewish rabbi at a fairly young age. Um, but he rose to prominence in the late 1960s here in the United States with the foundation of the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, um, uh, whose ideology was very simple. It was the protection of Jewish lives and Jewish property um, by any means necessary. And of course, that means generally something like violence, um, very confrontational political methods, uh, etc. And Kahana and his, uh, you know, the supporters he gathered around him um, were responding to rising anti-Semitism here in the United States. They were also responding to um, the virtual imprisonment of Soviet Jewry uh, behind the Iron Wall, and they they seemed to intuit that conventional political methods wouldn't solve this issue, and therefore chose unconventional and generally violent. Um, and confrontational methods in order to achieve their aims. So, you know, the establishment, for instance, of um, sort of vigilante neighborhood patrols um, right. to protect Jews um, and, you know, very uh, quite um, violent protests on behalf of Soviet Jewry in many places. So this is the sort of, um, these are the sorts of actions that Kahana uh, led and that led to his prominence in the late 1960s uh, and 1970s here in the United States. Um, but then he yeah. emigrated to Israel. Correct. So he emigrated to Israel in the early 1970s um, for two reasons. Firstly, because his own ideology um, definitely encouraged and even mandated Aliyah. Moving to Israel was a central platform of what he believed because he believed that Jews in the exile and diaspora uh, were not safe. And then ultimately all uh, stations in the diaspora would collapse in on itself like Nazi Germany did and like so many other uh, places did. Um, the second reason Kahana moved to America was he almost fled to America because he was facing many criminal charges uh, here in the United States. And even <laughs> though he visited the United States quite frequently, uh, he was convicted of quite a few um, quite a few criminal offenses, conspiracy to bomb uh, various places, um, other conspiracies to commit violence. He, he certainly had a long rap sheet. Um, but again, that led to, that, that augmented his mystique and his reputation among those who believed that it was these kind of violent confrontational methods that would deal with problems such as anti-Semitism, etc. And he, uh, he founded a political party in Israel, Kach or something, is my record? Yes, record. Kach. 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 Uh, Kach, yes. Uh, Which, not, what does uh, that word mean, literally? Uh, Kach literally means just thus, like this, in this manner. Um, and mm. what it was, was a... Uh, it was very much a continuation of his political ideology, um, a far-right ideology which sought to have Israel under the sole control of, of, of its Jewish members and essentially depriving its non-Jewish members of um, uh, political rights, which is the right to vote. Um, as he got more extreme in the 70s and 80s, he started advocating for the removal 
of uh, of the Palestinian minority out of Israel into Jordan and into other places. He, you know, he wanted to, them to do it voluntarily, so he offered uh, monetary um, uh, inducements to do so. However, his ideology was that Israel should be for the Jews and exclusively for the Jews, um, and that an, a presence of a non-Jewish um, minority signified a threat to the Jewish majority, and therefore they had to go. That was the basics of much what, of the Kach ideology. What, um, I mean, it was always a small party, I assume, but it, yes. did, it, did it achieve the threshold to be represented in the, in the Knesset? Yes. So in 1984, um, about a good 15 years after Kahana founded the party, it achieved one seat in the Knesset. The Knesset had 120 seats. Uh, in 1984, Kahana's party achieved one, uh, uh, one seat, and he himself sat in that seat. Uh, and for four years, he was a Knesset member. He spoke from the plenary of the Knesset. He used his status as a Knesset member uh, to his advantage in many ways. Um, of course, his speeches and his greatly raised profile um, disturbed the establishment in Israel. Um, and they were very much disturbed to have this far right um, antagonistic presence within the Knesset. And in uh, and a few years after he was elected, he was banned by the Knesset and that was upheld from the, by the Supreme Court. So he only had one tenure uh, as a four year tenure in the Knesset, just him. However, if he wouldn't have been banned, if his party wouldn't have been banned, polls showed that they would have received quite a few more seats in the next election. So his popularity was clearly on the rise. Interestingly, especially from the Mizrahim, which are the Jews of Middle Eastern origin within Israel, mm. um, who saw Kahana's attitude to the Arabs as, um, as appropriate, as somehow um, you know, recognizing the threat for what it was, uh, hence his popularity. And... Uh... Am I right that there was a constitutional revision to raise the threshold that would allow for representation in the Knesset after after him? I mean, I could be wrong about this. I, mean, I, uh, I don't, I don't mean was, to quiz you on no, 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 constitutional no, detail. No, correct. No, there was a such a constitutional revision, but it was a few years ago. It was many years after Khan's death. Um, a few years ago, they they raised the uh, yeah. You have to have a, you have to have a four seat minimum now. There are no one seat parties anymore. What? I mean, then he was assassinated, as I remember, in a hotel here in New York City. Correct. It has been described um, in various books as the first act of jihad on American soil, where you had um, uh, the, the targeted political assassination of Mayor Kahana, yes, uh, here, in, um, here in the United States. I believe that same individual who assassinated him was eventually released and was also involved in the uh, plot to bomb the World Trade Center in the mid-90s. So it was the same, uh, the same group of terrorists cell. So a a a uh, flamboyant, outspoken uh, figure. What did he get right? Um, so as I argued in my review, he he got a lot of his diagnoses of the problem largely correct. He foresaw, for instance, that the Palestinian minority within Israel, within uh, within the uh, the Judea and Samaria territories, um, they would not become this sort of quiet, pacific um, uh, partners for peace that many on the left hoped. Rather, they would see Israel as a continued travesty and, and um, an imposition on their national rights, and therefore would continue um, various campaigns, political campaigns, and also campaigns of terror against residents of the Jewish state and would target Jews. And this, unfortunately, has been borne out by intifada after intifada after intifada, um, in which many civilians of the, Jew of the Jewish state, both Jews, Christians, and Muslims, have been sacrificed um, or, or have been killed, and many have turned around and said, in some ways, Kahana at least sharply identified the problem. Um, he also identified a problem here in the United States, correctly, uh, which is that um, the, the, the um, demographic decline of non-Orthodox 
Jewish uh, denominations, right? That's within reform, conservative reconstruction um, denominations, there has been a sharp decline in participation, a sharp uptick in, in uh, intermarriage, and therefore these denominations are forecasted within a few decades to, to more or less disappear. And Kahana said, you know, without orthodox religion, without, you know, um, fealty to traditional understandings of God and the Torah and, and the commandments, um, then Judaism doesn't really have any lasting hope. And it seems to be that these demographics, you know, to some degree bear him out. But you also think he got things wrong. What oh, was going to get wrong? Um, okay, so, so a few things. Firstly, so far, he's certainly gotten wrong that that America is teetering toward on the precipice of another Holocaust, right? He really believed that anti-Semitism in America would uh, would uh, crescendo, would spike, and would cause a mass outbreak of Jew hatred and, and, and killing of Jews, and therefore everyone has to move to Israel. Um, yeah, it turns the, out, yeah, it turns out assimilation and intermarriage is a far greater threat than exactly. violent exactly. anti-Semitism. Correct. <laughs> well, maybe correct. not so bad. I guess if you have to choose your poisons, exactly. better better self-inflicted wounds than than you know a hostile hostile uh, adversary. <laughs> Correct. So, so I 100% agree with you. Having said that, many of us uh, Jews, I think, uh, who saw, for example, the the protest at in Charlottesville, um, where you know those uh, men with the the, the the torches and the white hoods who were yelling, "Jews will not replace us," right? And that was, for instance, a little bit of a sobering moment. Now, it doesn't mean that Kahana was right. What it does mean is that. Um, many Jews, especially who live in urban and very, uh, you know, cosmopolitan and friendly um, um, parts of the country, maybe underestimate the extent to which there really is anti-Semitism, you know, in other parts of the country. And that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sobering moment to realize that. Um, and so, and, and that's, you know, one element of Kahana. The second element that Kahana got, uh, meaning got terribly wrong, um, in the opinion of most Jews, it's not a historical fact, but it is that most Jews today don't think that it is either humane or reasonable or even a remotely plausible idea to expel two and a half million Palestinians. That, that's not something that anyone, any figure in Israel really takes seriously. Uh, very few Jews in the diaspora think that's at all a good idea uh, morally or, or politically. Um, and therefore, I think that that's been roundly dismissed out of the Jewish political uh, discussion. But his militancy, there is a, it does I mean, he was an extreme version of a transformation of Jewish culture after the Holocaust. Uh, I mean, it was already, there were precursors in the battles that raged, uh, guerrilla warfare and various battles that raged in, in Palestine before the foundation of the state of Israel. But, but I, I suppose I look at, I look back and see him in the context of your review, you cite where Shaul Magid, who's the author of, of this book, he describes Kahana as neo-biblical and anti-rabbinic. Uh, you, you can test this, although you say that it's not an implausible reading. And I read that, I mean, I'm an outsider, but I guess anti-rabbinic means um, dissenting from a certain consensus about accommodation to the Gentile, or at least survive, how to survive in the Gentile world. Um, which was one of um, obviously uh, legal rigor with respect to observance, but um, kind of non-confrontation when it comes to um, the political dominance of the Gentile world over the Jewish diaspora. Is that fair to say that people associate that with the rabbinic view? Um, I, the answer is yes, it is fair to say that. And that is 
what I contest to a certain degree uh, in my review. So to to to, um, to add to your point, yes, the uh, the point that Maggid makes in his book, and many people have as this sort of um, overgeneralized view of the Bible versus the rabbinic literature, is that the, the concerns in the Bible are very national, territorial. They involve a political state, a king, an army, and the defense of Jerusalem. These are sort of major concerns within, and the biblical heroes are people like David and Samson and and whoever else who you know defend the Jewish um, the Jewish polity in the land of Israel. Um, the rabbis, by contrast, are writing in an era after Jewish control over the land of Israel has ceased. There is no political state anymore. And a lot of the rabbinic writings, both in the Mishnah, written in the land of Israel, and the Talmud, written in Babylonia, uh, they are much more concerned with, as you say, accommodation. Um, how does one live in an exile? How does one, um, you know, retain a, a thriving religious community, but also in a kind of dialogue with the outside world? Um, and in such a way as not to antagonize or not to put oneself at odds too much uh, with that outside world. So that is a very uh, basic sort of dichotomy, which Magid um, in, embraces and endorses. The point that I make is that Kahana's final work, which is what Magid is talking about in those chapters, um, is actually an extraordinary work because what he does is he culls through these rabbinic, all this rabbinic literature. It's a vast mass of texts and takes many paragraphs which seem to support his view which seems to support this notion that, you know, no, on the contrary, Jews must defend themselves um, with violence. They must take vengeance against their enemies. They must be constantly on the lookout for nefarious actions against them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and my point is that the, the rabbinic texts are too unruly. They are too multivocal to really uh, boil down and say, oh, they are like this. They are like Shaul Magid. Because Shaul Magid himself is trying to recast their rabbis in his own image, right, as these Jewish scholars in a, in a non-Israelite environment who are you know, open to the world, whereas that's true of some of rabbinic literature, but there are other parts of rabbinic literature which are not the case, which are much more biblical, quote-unquote, and those are the parts that Kahana took and marshaled in his own favor. So what you have here is Kahana proving, in a way, that at least significant amounts of, of, of rabbinic literature can be marshaled in support of a Kahanist agenda, whereas Magid doesn't seem to think that's plausible at all, and, and he's wrong. Well, isn't when Rabbi Cook would be, isn't he an early figure, you know, flourishing at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, who reconciled um, political Zionism with, with uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Talmud, Talmudic tradition and, and religious orthodoxy, whereas beforehand there had been an antagonism between secular Zionism, which had a militancy and, and, uh, and the Orthodox authorities in the old world. Um, so in large part, you're correct, yes. Um, religious Zionism prior to Rav Cook was a very small minority within the overall Zionist movement. Uh, with Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, what you had was um, the uh, a, a, a major ideological figure who wrote um, an enormous amount. His, his thought is very complex and very difficult to get a handle on, and therefore I'm not so confident in my own ability to, to sum up exactly what he said. Uh, but yes, essentially uh, a religious Zionism, but based on a messianic vision of the world, the whole world is rising spiritually and, and there is this sort of perfection that must be affected. And for him, Zionism would be part of this, would be um, you know, a reconstitution of an ancient Jewish state, which would um, you know, uphold these messianic values, I would say, of, uh, and, and introduce into the world this, this completely new period. So kind of a, a Jewish Hegelianism. Yes, some have put Cook, or Cook into a Hegelian uh, package. I have to say, on this, 
Kahana is actually an heir of a slightly different tradition within the Zionist uh, umbrella, which is the revisionist Zionist tradition. This was a, a tradition of uh, a, a Zionist uh, faction that largely grew in uh, interwar Poland. And this was a, a youth group known as Beitar, uh, and it was headed by a very charismatic leader called Vladimir Jabotinsky. Uh, Jabotinsky was actually a guest in the house of Kahana's parents a few times, and Kahana saw him and spoke to him growing up, which is a very interesting um, um, little tidbit there. But, but that, that was a, 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 a romantic, nationalistic, and fervently uh, militaristic movement, especially a youth movement. Um, and that was something that Kahana very much continued, the, the sort of Jabotinsky-Betar uh, um, ideology, more so than, than the Rav Kook ideology, because Rav Kook was very pacific, very messianic yes. and idealistic, and not militaristic like Kahana was. Yes. Well, that is an interesting connection. That's a fascinating connection, but Jabotinsky was he? But he was not uh, religiously observant, was he? Um, no, he essentially no, he wasn't personally. But it, he encouraged a sort of Zionism that paid great respect to tradition, the Bible, the Hebrew language, the land of Israel. I mean, the, the core components to a large degree are there. Interesting. You, you, uh, as a young, as a young. Uh, you know, reader grazing in the in the field of books came across a Kahana, and and so tell 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 the listeners about your own engagement. How did you find? I mean, was he a part of your world at all, or you just discovered him on your own? Um, I largely discovered him on my own. I discovered him about the age of sixteen or seventeen, um, and um, you know, in sort of my my adolescent youth. Um, and I come from a what may fairly be called a Haredi background. It's sort of a, a more uh, something closer to ultra orthodoxy. Um, but I found Kahana's writings extremely uh, compelling. Firstly, he is a very good writer, very um, agile orator as well. If you see any of his speeches on YouTube, you can really see um, he has that that talent of writing. Um, but also the way in which he uh, conveyed Jewish pride, Jewish self-respect, you know, um, uh, idolizing the Bible and the land of Israel, uh, th this very much jived with the with me, who who grew up with these values. But um, within the ultra-orthodox world, that's not connected to contemporary politics at all, right? It's sort of an idealized version of it. Whereas Kahana was very practical, very grounded, and therefore he said we must have a strong state of Israel, and therefore we must have strong Jewish self-defense. Etc. Etc. Um, that very much grasped me, and and even to this day has a certain influence in my head. But even back then, when when it came to Kahana's more extreme political uh, ideology, let's say his anti-Arab ideology or his 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 idea that you know the state of Israel should ban intermarriage, even back then I, I already saw this. Firstly, wasn't practical, and also wasn't just you know wasn't where I was at ideologically at all. Um, but but Maggid is half right about one thing, which is that in Orthodox circles today. Some of Kahana's writings and ideas do retain this kind of power because he very eloquently and very passionately defends some of these core Jewish values, which are important. Oh, I can't remember the name of the guy who's got the, who's the radio personality who who led the anti-lockdown um, groups in Borough Park in Brooklyn uh, in 2020. But he seems to be descended from the same. I mean, it's maybe not uh, intellectually, but they're. There is a, there is a, there is a militant tradition, in, in, I mean, in modern, uh, but certainly post-war, uh, Orthodox Judaism, ultra-Orthodox Judaism, uh, that, that, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, there's a little bit of uh, people, right? I mean, again, I think it's Magid, you know, 
not allowing that there's any whiff of Achilles in the rabbinic tradition. And it would be very odd to think, given the Bible itself, which has many Achillean figures in it, it would be very odd that if the rabbis didn't um, didn't have moments where they highlighted that aspect of, of the tradition. A hundred percent. What what do you think his legacy is? Um, so, so I would say he has a couple of legacies. The, the main legacy that people see is currently in Israel, um, the continuations of the Kahanist party. Unfortunately, those elements have become more and more radical, more and more extreme, to a degree that I don't think Kahana, having read his writings, would have approved of at all. Um, and there are these extreme outposts in certain settlements and other places which do, you know, inflict random violence and, and, and you know, commit all sorts of crimes. And it's uh, that is seen as a kind of neo-Kahanism, which is very, um, I don't know, very, you know, for, again, a vast majority of the Jews around the world completely disown and, um, you know, condemn this sort of behavior, but that is conceived, seen largely as a, a Kahanist um, legacy. I would say that actually the, the main part of his legacy really was and his, ma his major message, certainly within the Israel context, which is that the conflict won't end, that, that a, a search for a two-state solution is uh, is chimerical. It's, it's, you know, you're searching for, you're chasing fantasies, right? That as long as the Palestinian uh, people believe that Israel is fundamentally thievery, the Jews have stolen their land, that they are illegitimate and illegal, they will never stop um, fighting and agitating for their own state. And the longer that this uh, unfortunate conflict continues, and the more, um, you know, the more bodies, uh, the more, you know, the more deaths and, and injuries um, it, uh, it accumulates, the more the people in Israel say maybe Kahana wasn't right that we have to you know expel them but there was a certain a kernel of truth and truth be told nowadays in Israel the right-wing view of the of the um, of the conflict has has completely dominates the uh, political spectrum the the Israeli left has shrunk tremendously in the last few decades because that little kernel of Kahanism I think is recognized in general but again I don't think that's Kahanism I just think that's a generally hawkish view of this conflict mm. I suppose uh, you could support two states, but reject the idea that it's a solution. In other words, you know, you, you know, it seems to me there might be a whole range of, of things that, um, that Jews in Israel might support, but the general consensus is that it's not like there's going to be some sort of magic agreement that will put an end to these things. It's question is whether it's hot or cold. <laughs> Precisely. Well, and, and the most interesting uh, thing you can see of that is in the last 10 or 15 years in Israeli elections, the main subjects that are discussed are not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is very unusual. Until, you know, the early 2000s, that was the major um, um, discussion. Then, it, you know, in the 2010s, it shifted into economics. It shifted into the, the question of Iran. It shifted into other, you know, you know the, the, the war with Hamas. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict has even taken a bit of a backseat in Israeli politics because so many people just see it as this perpetual, intransigent, unmoving conflict, and why waste more time and money trying to deal with it? Yeah, interesting. Is there a book, well, as we wrap up, is there a book by Kana that you would recommend? Um, so two books come to mind. The first is the most interesting book written by him. It's called The Story of the Jewish Defense League, uh, which is a book which he wrote and, and telling from his own perspective and his, uh, you know, very um, self glorifying, obviously, a perspective uh, of the story of how the Jewish Defense League came to be and, the ver and its various exploits. But you have a very good um, 
ideology, uh, just ideological core of what the Jewish Defense League stood for. So I would recommend that book to readers. And his classic book, um, I think, which which sort of outlines the majority of of his real kahanim, is a book called Never Again. Okay, and it became his slogan, the slogan of the Jewish Defense League, that you know we our generation has witnessed the Holocaust. We know that ignoring incipient anti-Semitism can be dangerous down the road, and therefore we're going to fight it with. By any, again, by any means necessary. And mm-hmm. that book, I think, is, is the centerpiece of his, the fulcrum of his ideology. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with our listeners. Thank you. I really appreciate this, and I hope we'll have more conversations in the future.